Hey everyone, this is Dr. Andy Wilczek. This week I'm talking with Dr. Brianna Bopre, Assistant Professor of Criminal Justice at Wichita State University, about her research on corrections and women's system involvement. This is episode 31 of On Tenure Tracks. which I did interviews and focus groups with women under community supervision in Oregon. So mostly in Portland, but some outside of Portland. And just asking them about their life experiences, what led them into the system. But I had one set of questions that asked if they've ever been labeled as an offender, an inmate, or a criminal, and how did they respond to that? Like, how did that make them feel and what impacts did it have on their lives? And so I'm working on that right now, and that's been really interesting to me just to see the impacts that these labels can have on these women's lives. And I know labeling theory is one of those criminological theories that has kind of gone through shifts in popularity. I kind of feel like it might be making a comeback. I don't know. That might just be me. Um, but one thing like that I noticed with a lot of criminological theories is that they don't really account for gender differences or differences across race, intersectional considerations. So one of the things that I've been finding from this study that I'm doing is that gender does matter, and especially when we're talking about labeling, because women carry that motherhood role, that identity attached to being a caregiver very seriously. And so when women are called these things like a criminal, an offender, an inmate, it's not just a violation of like a social norm, but it's also a personal gender norm that's breaking because it's not like a feminine characteristic to go out and commit crime. So it's like a double effect that it has. And that's what these women who I talked to about it also mentioned. Mm -hmm. And so like, I'm really excited about that project. I'm really excited about any project where it's having the people who've been directly impacted speak their truth and let us know what they think about these policies and things that impact them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So, um, like I teach a lot of crim theory stuff and, uh, I wrote a, a book on gender and crime and like, it's very obvious that like, well, I mean, not obvious. I- I'm saying this, I'm trying to make this sound like, I don't know, like a theory is garbage in a lot of ways, you know, yeah. like uh, everything that as it was originally formulated. So just like, just the fact that we're basing like policy ideas on theories that were designed or like where the theorists were like, uh, boys and girls are basically the same. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. who cares about rich people? <laughs> exactly. And they're not, right? There's some fundamental differences, especially like what I've been finding related to trauma. And so that was one of my other publications for my dissertation was looking at how women respond to adverse childhood experiences. And I had a small sample of women because it's qualitative, but out of those women, on average, they experienced seven different types of ACEs. 
So that's a, that's a huge range and it affects them in very serious ways. Like out of all the things we talked about, many of them said, my childhood is what led me into the system. And for them, like what it manifested into was their substance use and their substance use became this way to self-medicate that <laughs> unaddressed trauma and mental health issues that came from that trauma that was never addressed in the community. Because, you know, we live in the U.S. and we're very much an individualist society that is like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, like you don't need that. But no, actually, like there are things we could do to intervene in that process before people end up in the system. And a lot of it is related to how we respond and react to trauma. Mm -hmm. How did they um, view their substance use, especially as like that label? Was that something that came up at all in your interviews? Yeah, so the, the labeling part is part of the new paper where it's like they mentioned that women, when they use substances, it's even more looked down upon, they noticed, than they, they said for men. So it's like like this double standard where they're trying to be good caretakers, they're trying to be in that role. Substance use takes away from that. And so they had a lot of shame and discouragement around those labels, especially as being someone who uses substances and also a mother. That mm -hmm. were some of the narratives that came from that. So how do those labels, I mean, is there any kind of like balancing there or is the, the shame associated with um, like their offending behaviors and their substance use behaviors, does that outweigh like whatever, I guess, positive benefits they might derive from the, from the mother label at all? Hmm, that's a good question. I didn't find a balancing, like, especially because some of them lost custody of mm -hmm. their children. So, like, it was, like, one of them said, like, if I'm not a mother, what am I? And mm -hmm. I lost custody of my child because of my substance use. Okay. So it's very intertwined. Yeah. And I think, like, if I were to do this again, like, I would have just a study on this labeling part. Mm -hmm. Like, this was just a small part. But it's just so fascinating to me. And I think there's so many different directions to go. Like you mentioned, like, do these things, like, counteract or do, do some labels outweigh one another? Like, I don't know for sure. But it's definitely an avenue to go from. Because I'm thinking about it in terms of desistance. I mean, mm -hmm. and like, the desistance stuff would say, at least for men, that that fatherhood would be something mm -hmm. that would, you know, push guys into more pro-social behavior or at least maybe being smarter about their offending. And I'm just curious, like, like that's a very, I think, clear example of a gender difference, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. And I think like when, when women that custody is taken away and they lose that label, it can actually spiral them back into criminality. Mm -hmm. That's like the consequence that I noticed just mm -hmm. from some of their narratives. So I think like, I didn't realize how easy it was for them to lose custody. Like, so one woman, she said she was in jail and she like couldn't get a hold of her attorney. Her attorney couldn't get a hold of her for a couple weeks. And because of that, like, because she couldn't communicate with them, she lost her children just in a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. And so I think the consequences of that, we don't realize it's not just like harming the kids because women are the primary caregivers and all of this has adverse impacts on the children. Mm -hmm. Some research shows that when moms are incarcerated, it actually has more impacts than if dads are incarcerated. Mm -hmm. So, like, we're not just harming the mothers in this. We're also harming the kids. But then if we're just so quick to remove custody, it can cause them to spiral and go back into that pattern, especially with substance use. Yeah. 
it'd be interesting to see this as like a life history kind of thing too you know what i mean like you know they they do a stint in prison and then have a kid and then maybe are back in prison for a little bit and like just because i'm thinking about like what's how do having multiple children affect this which Mm -hmm. could be like i mean it sounds kind of cynical but like thinking of it as like multiple bites at the apple you know what Mm -hmm. i mean like i this is my like my third kid is my chance to be a really good parent now like what is like how does that like redefinition of the label or reapplication Mm -hmm. like like how does that and right now i'm just thinking out loud (laughs) so yeah and even think about age like a lot of the women i interviewed had children very very young and so for them like being in that mindset being a mother it doesn't connect as much, I think, maybe when they're younger than when they're older. So it's also an age thing, too, from what I've noticed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you are, if you have your first kid at, like, 16 and you have all of the perspective of a 16-year-old versus, yeah. like, when you're, like, more of an adult and, like, let's say in your 30s, 32, like, twice as old, right? Like, obviously, you've got way more perspective and life experience. And Well, now I feel old. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, so wise. listen, I'm going to be 40 in f- less than four months. Oh, <laughs> so birthday. no, you don't get to complain about being old. Oh, okay. I'm <laughs> I am the grizzled old senior faculty oh, member here. Well, I never would have guessed. So. <laughs> yeah, because I've got, I'm, we re- I record in my basement with like all of this comic book stuff around and yeah it's... it reminds me of my husband's work <laughs> like his his home office is in the basement his looks very similar his even has a weight bench too so <laughs> i needed yeah. a calming space and it works for these interviews too because it's very disarming oh i think <laughs> great right? well it I is right at home so oh yeah i oh, mean yeah. If I had, if I was doing this from like my, my office on campus, which I can't even get into now because we're locked out, but, um, I think meeting some random dude from Twitter for the first time might feel kind of weird. And so let's have my weight bench and this old mattress my wife won't let me throw away and (laughs) (laughs) and all this other stuff here. So I'm just kind of like just a bum (laughs) that is interviewing people. Yeah. Um, it's how it is. Uh, mm-hmm. so I, I like what you said about the policy part of this too, and having people, um, who are really going to be experiencing a lot of the policies directly have a, an opportunity to, to speak up about it. And I say that because, um, I've been working on like this crime history project that has really turned into like almost a policy history thing Hmm. and so just learning about the the kennedy and the johnson administrations and how i mean they hired these social scientists to help like guide all of their um like to guide the war on poverty and the war on crime and all of these programs they they implemented and they never nobody ever considered going into the city to talk to people wow (laughs) and so they it's those who are closest to the problem are mm-hmm. closest to the solution. Yep. Right. So why wouldn't we involve these individuals who have so much knowledge mm-hmm. about the inner workings of the system? It just seems silly to me not to involve them. It's yeah. And it's really, it's so fascinating. Like I wish I could go back and just like see some of these, these conversations that people had because it was Lloyd Olin 
and his whole the whole idea of blocked opportunities that mm-hmm. the Kennedy administration and then LBJ took on and they they they, they bought into it lock stock and barrel mm-hmm. without realizing that like maybe we should maybe we should go talk to people who's who we think are, are having these blocked opportunities about like what better how better to serve them and on their own we're just like they worked a lot with law enforcement and said it's like there this is where this idea of like black pathology came from and they they talk about that a ton that mm-hmm. it's just this legacy of slavery and black families are are destroyed by poverty and we need to do all of these things and they they viewed uh an increase in enforcement as like a a mechanism to pull people out of that which is really yeah. a strange <laughs> kind of solution i mean yeah. especially now given everything that we know right about how the the war on crime and the war on drugs ended up turning out like it's just to like look back and see a president and be like you naive pollyanna <laughs> like, yeah. what are you thinking so yeah. how so all of that is built up to to ask you like what are some of the ways that you have been able to talk to people about policy um do you mean directly impacted people or yeah d- yeah directly impacted people um, one of the things I've been really getting into is participatory action research, mm-hmm. which seeks to empower those who are directly impacted through the research process. So it's seeking to make policy changes with people who are impacted. And so I just worked on this study last spring with my colleagues in social work, where in social work, this is common practice. Mm-hmm. Like participatory action research is like just second nature. But for whatever reason, us in criminal justice, (laughs) that seems like such a foreign topic because it's crossing the lines between being this, quote, unbiased researcher and being an advocate. Mm -hmm. And I think that gets scary for some fields in social science. But I instantly gravitated gravitated towards my friend in social work because of that reason. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm like, this sounds awesome. We have to do something together. Like, this is so cool. And so we did this participatory action research project with children who were in an alternative education program. So they were long-term expelled from their regular school or they were doing like a short-term suspension. But either way, they were in this alternative education program where it was all what they what they call at-risk youth, mm-hmm. which means like they were at-risk youth for going into the system or many of them had already been in the system. Like mm-hmm. one of them already had an ankle bracelet on. Um, so we went to this school and we did this project. It was called a photo voice methodology where we gave children these cameras to use and we gave them a research question each week to answer through their photos. And so the first week was, what is the average day like in this program? And they took pictures. And then the second week was, what, what do you like best about this program? And then the last week is, what would you change? And so each week when they took the photos, we would meet with them and do focus groups Mm -hmm. and like ask them to choose their photos and talk about their photos. Why did they take it and have the other students look at their photos and choose the ones that they liked best. And then the end result was this community exhibit that we had at our university where over 50 community stakeholders came, including funding agents for the program. So the director of the Department of Corrections was there. Um, People who worked in juvenile justice settings were there. Students from our classes came too. And then the actual students who were in the study also came and two of them spoke. Mm -hmm. And honestly, like them speaking, like I started to cry because 
they just like they talked about how fun it was to do this project and have somebody who was outside actually come and like care like what they're doing and want to make a difference Mm -hmm. and so it was just like really powerful in a way like these kids actually had a say and what changes would occur in the program. Mm -hmm. Like that's really powerful. And just their photos were amazing. Like I was blown away at how awesome they did. Just me giving them a basic photography lesson, like an hour (laughs) class, they just took it and ran and were so creative with it. Yeah. Do you do photography? Are you, are you, is that a hobby of yours? I'm very amateur. So an undergrad, (laughs) I took two classes. So Uh that's about it. But (laughs) two two more classes than, than I've had. (laughs) But no, it's fun. I take lots of photos of my dogs, which are all over Twitter. So (laughs) talk to me with that. (laughs) We will, I'm going to include your Twitter handle in the show notes so people can, can uh, follow your, your dog stuff. They your dog art. Alfie, Heidi, and Lucy. Those are my dogs. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what kinds of ideas did the kids have? Like, so I guess oh, uh, like, there were some good ones. <laughs> like, was it like big picture stuff or like, did they get into like the nuts and bolts of it or both or. Yeah. So imagine, um, these kids are coming from all kinds of crazy backgrounds. A lot of them have behavioral issues, mm-hmm. obviously, like given all the trauma they've been through, it's like, are we allowed to cuss on this or like, or you is can, that okay? no, listen, <laughs> listen to Sarah Daly's episode. Uh, oh, I heard that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, people so. are worried about swearing on here. Um, Sarah used language that I am uncomfortable repeating. <laughs> I heard it. So. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay, good to know. Go so for it's it. like, yeah, no, like no shit. They have these conduct disorder or like behavioral issues from what they've been through. Mm-hmm. So, like, imagine you're putting them in this environment where it's super structured, super surveilled. They can't even get up from their desks. Like, they're stuck at their desks. If they put their head down, like even like this, they get like a disciplinary you know, called out for it. Uh So it's like very restricted, which seems counterintuitive for these kiddos who are especially at risk and at need for more. Mm -hmm. And so that was like one of the big complaints was like just that they had to sit in the desk all day and everything was online education. Yeah. So they couldn't work with each other. They couldn't communicate with each other at all Mm -hmm. besides like their recess time, which they didn't, they actually got less recess than, like regular schools. Mm -hmm. Um, So they like just the restrictions. And one thing that stuck out for me, especially from like this labeling perspective I've been into was they had to wear uniforms and they were tan, like tan makes sense. Right. Mm -hmm. But for them, they're like, no, it makes me feel like I'm in jail because that's what they wear when they go to jail. Mm -hmm. And they're like, these are our jail uniforms. And even like the cognitive behavioral therapy group, Uh, booklets that they gave them they gave them like journals they were for adults and so like one of this one of the kids was like it's talking about killing someone in here i'm not gonna go kill someone like what i can't relate to this he's like those are jail books it's like (laughs) they make us feel like we're criminals i'm like so so from this labeling perspective right you're putting them in this alternative education program where it's supposed to be like removing them from being system involved But then all this security, surveillance, like emphasis on discipline is just making them feel more like labeled and like criminal. 
So it's just, I don't know, it's just a little counterintuitive. And those are the things that they picked up and they took pictures and we had them in the exhibit. Yeah. It was really cool. How, <laughs> how did the stakeholders respond to this? So some changes have been made, I can okay. say. Good. But not all, not all changes. So that, <laughs> that's all I can say about that. Okay. So um, I think I get you. Uh, were they surprised that the kids were thoughtful about it? Did were there's, Was there a, a willingness to entertain any of the ideas that the kids had or... or no. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just the fact allowing us to come in like and do this study, like Mm -hmm. it was very open. And I think that the leader of the program, the director, like him being so open to us coming and doing this, like shows his openness to ideas of change. Mm -hmm. And so some of like, I understand like, cause I have this corrections background too. That's my area of research. And a lot of times where like I might bump heads with people who work in the field is this idea of like, we have to maintain security and I totally get that, right? Like security is the number one interest. We want to maintain safety for everyone. But some, but I think that what people don't realize is the environment cues behavior. So like if you're doing these things and it's not very like trauma informed and rehabilitative, that can actually have the opposite effect. So that's where I get worried, like when that happens and those narratives that that student, those students mention, it actually can have the opposite effect. And I don't know that for sure, because this was just one exhibit, one Mm. narrative study. We didn't do quantitative analyses of outcomes, Mm. but that's where I start to worry. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I've done some stuff in our community um, with an agency here, and I don't I'm not sure how much I want to like name names on this yeah (laughs) um so how can i talk about this without like totally giving away what it was does it even matter um so basically i was involved in a project that was designed to get kids to to have a more practical understanding of what policing is like um and the goal of it was to um overall to like make the community safer right um to make the uh make the kids understand like here's the realities of policing and make the police understand like it sucks to be 16 and it's yeah. like really scary and terrifying to be 16 years old mm-hmm. um and so the the program came out of this idea about like making the police less racist <laughs> but when we surveyed the students after um so we did like a pre-test post-test thing um afterwards across all of the different events we did all it did was confirm to the students that the police were racist. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and so, like, their assessment of how racist they think the cops are going into it and coming out of it, in some cases, it actually went up. Um, but wow. then, so, like, how I sold it as a win was, like, well, they also are more... They have better coping skills now for when they do get... Or they claim they have better coping skills now for when they do get stopped. They're not going to be as standoffish about taking their hoodie off, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so we sold that as a... I mean, the agency bought it as a as a win, but my students and I were, like, really sketched out by it. <laughs> like, this yeah. is so uncomfortable. I remember being in one meeting um, as we were building up to it, and there was a, a guy in there, and I forget where he was from, but he was, like... He was all about this law enforcement simulator that they had. 
Mm-hmm. And he was like, every time I've met somebody who is anti-cop, I have them do the simulator and they come away from it feeling so much more respect for us. And I was like, well, that's great, but there's no such thing as like a 16-year-old black kid simulator. And he got no. so mad. Oh. He he was so Ooh. pissed at me. He walked out of the room. <laughs> wow. <laughs> like, that's well. the thing. Like working with people in the field, it's interesting. It's definitely a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, I've met a lot of awesome people. Right. Like I've met awesome correctional officers. Mm-hmm. They're there for the right reasons. I actually have one come to my class as a guest speaker every semester mm-hmm. and he's very humble. He's like, you treat them like humans. You treat yeah. them how you want to be treated. But then there's others who like I brought my students to a facility tour last semester, last spring. And one of the officers who gave the tour was basically like they're just all pieces of shit and they deserve to be here and just instantly like students were turned off yeah and they're like i don't want to work here this is (laughs) awful this goes against everything everything dr b has taught us this goes against yeah so like it's it's challenging it's challenging to change people's minds especially when they're not in your classroom Mm -hmm. like that's harder for me to do than like a student who's like you know, this, this thing, this malleable thing that I can change over time, over 15 weeks. I don't get to do that as much with people who work in the field. Yeah. Yeah. I had, a um, somebody, she, she's no longer at this prison, but she was a social worker there. Um, and she came in to talk to the class and, and, or to uh, one of my classes and she had, um, like she was doing it for all the right reasons, but, my students were shocked at some of the horror stories that she had, not about the people who were there, but about the, like the staff and mm-hmm. just how, how little they cared and how for many of them, this was an opportunity to retire by the time they were 40 or so mid forties. Yeah. And and my students were just jaws on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> like, and think for the, for being a correctional officer, like here in my state, you can be 18 and just a high school diploma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. That's your only qualification. And then you do training when you're there. But in some states, I've I've heard that they do training the same as law enforcement, even though like a correctional officer is a very different position. Mm -hmm. You're working with these individuals long term. Mm -hmm. It's a whole different situation, but they're Mm -hmm. trained the same way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just remembering a guy that I met who was trying to I wonder how he's doing. He was trying to start like a citizen's like drug awareness commission here. Um, So the County that I live in um, has been really, really hit hard by the opioid epidemic. Um, Mm -hmm. People around here will joke that like the two reasons CNN comes to my County is because of heroin. And because we are the County that got Donald Trump elected. (laughs) (laughs) And so, but he, he was a cop for a year and then he became a correctional officer for like i want to say like 17 years and when i I first met him after like five minutes of talking to this guy he was like my whole career is a failure (laughs) like like okay you're one of those guys like but tell me more Mm-hmm. And he was like, when I started at this, the facility that he was at, there was this small number of people in for drugs. And by the time I retired there, it had skyrocketed and nothing that the prison did was helpful. And so I have a, I have a career as a failure to look back on. Mm-hmm. Like, that's harsh. Like, I, I think that students need to hear stories like that, honestly. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that environment matters. So I've met correctional officers who've left because of that, because mm-hmm. they're like, I can't do anything. And I came, like, my home state is especially punitive, mm-hmm. where it's really hard to get anything done and to change people's minds. Whereas, like, the state I'm at now, which is Kansas, I, like, I am shocked, like, at how open they've been and how, like, on board they are with mm-hmm. evidence-based practices. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, like, even the facilities I choose to show students, like, I choose them very specifically because I want them to see the balance of both. Mm-hmm. And that's why I choose this maximum security prison because they can see kind of the old school values just in how the prison was built. Yeah. But then most of the staff there are really awesome, really humanistic, on board with rehabilitation and even restorative justice in there. Cool. And so that's, you know, I choose those places very carefully because of the impact it can have on students. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious. So like, and you mentioned this before about trying to walk that line between being an activist and a scholar and, yeah. and we'll get to that. But I'm, I'm wondering, have you done anything to like interact with any of your local legislators about your stuff? Not yet. The most I've done is I helped with a presentation for the sentencing commission. Mm-hmm. Um, and we advised them to adopt the women's risk needs assessment tool, which was designed to, be an actual actuarial assessment specifically for women. Mm-hmm. Most of the assessments are gender neutral, quote, but they were developed on men and then generalized to women. <laughs> this one is really measuring women's needs, especially related to trauma and substance use. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard there's been movement there, but then COVID-19 happened and now I'm not sure yeah. where that's going. That's my only involvement yet. So I would, I would just recommend like, Find, like just going to some of their stuff and and writing letters, maybe like delivering letters to their offices. I mean, I have a class where I have students do that, um, but I know like especially state people are mm-hmm. are usually desperate for attention. Cool. Awesome, <laughs> yeah. Um, so trying to find ways to to interact with them. I mean, especially when they're out of session and are just mm-hmm. are just back in town. Uh, yeah. Just drop by and say, give them a business <laughs> card and say hi. I mean it. It doesn't. It doesn't hurt. You know. Nice. Um, and I would find out who your lieutenant governor is too, okay. because the I mean the governor's office is a whole other mess. But lieutenant governors are people that usually slide under the radar. Um, okay. Cool. And so I'll definitely check that out. And I like that you involve your students too. That's awesome. It's it's fun. It sucks now doing this all in isolation, and like I honestly nice. don't know what we're going to do. Um, but like an idea they had, so in this class, it's, it's called contemporary issues in criminal justice. And so I let them pick, do they want to do like research heavy or more like political issues? And they Mm -hmm. usually go for the political stuff. Uh Um, Oh yeah. Research is like, nah, (laughs) but it's, but I mean, this is how you trick them, right? Because, (laughs) because you can't, you can't write letters to legislators about policy changes you want to recommend without having like something to back it up with. Right. So before we broke, they they were going to write a letter to our uh, Secretary of Corrections about the mental health initiatives on the Pennsylvania DOC page wow. because it hasn't been That's updated wow. in in four or five years. Oh wow! That's <laughs> and That's so cool. And so I was like, I think we can like I'm sure we can get Wenzel's uh, Secretary Wenzel's attention um, if we send it to the governor, lieutenant governor, and him. 
and just say like, Hey, like here's some like simple ideas we have for you. And maybe, maybe that's a way you can like affect immediate change. And they were, they were shocked. Like, like when I pulled it up in class, because I had no idea what it was going to look like, Mm -hmm. you know, but like the first link on that website was to a HuffPo article. (laughs) And the second one was an old CNN.com piece from 2016 like how useful is that for people now you know so um and i was going to have the secretary of pardons come he was going to he was supposed to come to our class on april 6th and unfortunately that yeah (laughs) but he's coming he's coming back he's a really cool guy um that's another way i would suggest like like getting in touch with your local people because our secretary of pardons is the first person in the history of Pennsylvania to have criminal justice involvement, who is now oh. one of the most powerful people in the system or like running nice. the system. So it's, it's super cool. That's awesome. That is really cool. That's a, that's a really good idea. Thank you. Like I will take you up on that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm here for. Follow them on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> just, <laughs> be don't be like a nuisance but like make sure they know who you are and like regardless of party affiliation because i don't i don't know that party affiliation matters i mean it still matters at the state level but depending you know i'm registered independent okay um because i mean we've we've gone after after everybody you know Mm -hmm. i gave them the option about whether or not they want to write letters to the white house and they usually say no so, um, but that's enough about me. This is not the Andy Wilzak show. Um, how do we, how do you bring yourself into the classroom? What are some of the challenges that you have in, in teaching, um, labeling and corrections and just, you know, corrections in general to undergraduates? Um, well, corrections is very personal to me because as I told you before this, um, both my parents were incarcerated for most of my life. Um, So since I was six months old, all the way through 21, my dad was incarcerated most of that time. I think the most he was out was like a year or two. And then my mom is still in and out of the system, as far as I know. Um, I don't really have a relationship with my mom, but I've always stayed close with my dad because his grandparents are the ones who raised me. Mm -hmm. So my great-grandparents raised me. Um, So I grew up visiting my dad in prison every weekend, um, sometimes twice a weekend, So I was, you know, I really just grew up a part of the system and it led me to want to learn more and try to make changes. Mm -hmm. And so I remember being a teenager visiting my dad and that's when I got like really aware of like some of the issues in the system, especially like where I'm from, like rehabilitation and treatment wasn't, wasn't a priority. Mm -hmm. So like he would be in prison and I'm like, Hey, like, what are you doing? He's like, nothing. I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> but, like, the third time for him, like, he, I feel like he really took ownership and made this happen on his own, like, to change because he was in his late 30s at that point. He was early 30s. Yeah, it was early 30s. Um, and he's like, yeah, I can't keep doing this. Like, I just can't. Like, it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, so his, both my parents were struggling with substance use. And that's what got them in the system. And he's Mm -hmm. just like, yeah, I can't, I just can't keep doing this. And so like, we were also very lucky. Like my family came from working middle-class backgrounds. So like we could afford to come there to see him, to have the dollar per minute phone calls, all of that. Like, I don't think people realize 
the struggles that families face just trying to keep in touch with loved ones, like the transportation, like some prisons I had to visit my dad were five hours away. Like if I didn't have a family who could bring me there, I wouldn't have seen him for Mm -hmm. years. So, and that was like a trip where we would have to go and stay the night at a hotel. Yeah. And that, you know, that, that all became normal, which was fine, but there's a lot of families who can't do it financially. Yeah. And so I think that's what people don't realize. Um, and so like also part of that was my dad, we could afford to pay for him to take college classes. So he got his GED while he was in prison. He got three associate's degrees and he really just put everything into school. Yeah. And that's what made the difference for him. And so like seeing that transformation for him, I think is what led me to want to go into higher education. I'm like, I want to be I want to be some part of someone's change, whether it's like impacting students' lives, the participants I work with, stakeholders, whatever it is, like I just saw being a professor as the way to do that. And so the way I do it with students is I emphasize experiential learning. That's like my favorite pedagogical tool. Like everything is all about experiential learning. And part of that is because what research shows is that when students have an emotional connection with the material, it's going to have an impact beyond the class. So I want to give them that emotional impact. And I remember back to when I took my intro to to corrections class, we took a tour of a facility and it was one that my dad was actually at at one point. So I got to see behind the scenes, like the cells where my dad was, like the commissary, the chow hall, I got to see all of that. And like, if I close my eyes still to this day and think about my corrections class, that's what I remember. I don't remember my professor up there lecturing. I don't remember his PowerPoints. I remember going to that prison, (laughs) smelling it, feeling it, seeing it. Mm -hmm. That's what made an impact on me. And that's what I want to do for my students. And so to do that, that's why I have them go on a tour of a prison, a local prison. Um, I offer them to go on optional tours beyond that as well so they can compare different facilities. And then I also have guest speakers. So I think I mentioned I have the correctional officer from that same facility. He comes to our class and does a guest speaking. You know, he he talks about his experiences in in working in the field, his philosophies on corrections, which... Which I love because they support mine. So that's part of and what the research shows works. So that's another thing. Like I try very hard not to put my opinion on students, but to lead them a certain way. Like you know, like a shepherd leading sheep. <laughs> yep. I like do things very purposely, but I'm not like this is right and this is wrong. Yeah. So I think that helps too. Like the very first week of class, I give them an article by Doris McKenzie on insider and outsider knowledge. It's like the first chapter in Colin and Johnson's Correctional Theories book, and it's all about how insider knowledge, which is based upon anecdote, personal experience, is different than outsider knowledge which is scientific research that's gathered by people like me. Like I tell them I'm one of those people. And so I think that helps them to kind of see the difference between relying on one's individual opinion versus research and science and evidence-based practice. So I start, I set up the whole class like that and I kind of lead them towards certain conclusions because I give them the evidence and show them the research behind each correctional theory and the programs that we talk about. 
And so like they have um, their first exam, they get to design their own correctional system. And I tell them there's no right or wrong answers. They just have to justify their responses based upon what the research shows works. And if they want to ignore research, they can, but they have to justify why. Uh-huh. And so that's like, I, I am very much like you're making your own decisions. You all have your own insider knowledge. Like a lot of them have experienced their own victimization. They've known people close to them who've been victimized. There are also a growing number of my students who have family members incarcerated. This semester, more than ever, ever any semester I've taught before, I've had more students come to me and say that they've had a parent or a brother or a sister, someone in their family incarcerated. And so that's also why, like, I try to be very humanistic about this because I know, like, when I was sitting in criminal justice classes and professors would say things like, oh, they're just offenders, like, they would say, like, things that would get to me. I'm like, well, it's my dad. Like, you know, he's not, like, a terrible person. He struggled with substance use. So that's why I'm mindful of, like, language and labeling and all this stuff because I was one of those kids sitting in the classroom being like, oh, every time they would say stuff like that, it would make me feel like there's a stigma. And so I want to try and break that. Um, You're amazing. (laughs) (laughs) That was a long... It's okay. Totally okay. Um, That's incredible. So um, I got to keep all these questions straight that I have for you now. Um, So can you think of, do you remember, was there like a, like any particular moment when you would go visit your dad where you started to question like, where, where you can like see now like the professor part of you was coming out. You know what I mean? Where like, you were asking about, like, why does this prison work oh, this way? Yeah. Or was there, like, just a moment where it's, like, kind of like that holy shit moment, right? Like, you know what I'm trying? Like, it doesn't, yeah. I think quarantine has turned my brain into mush. <laughs> so. No, no, yeah. Well, I get what you mean. I think it was a lot of things. I think it was, you know, just asking questions about, like, the treatment and what what are they doing to help people change their behavior. And when the answer is nothing, I just don't think that makes sense. Like if we're going to spend trillions of dollars on the correctional system, why wouldn't we invest it in things that we know work to change behavior? Because we know 95 to 97% of people who go in are coming back out. Mm -hmm. So who do you want as your potential neighbor? Do you want somebody who's gone through cognitive behavioral therapy, who has a vocational license, who got their GED, Or do you want someone who just sat in their cell hanging out and talking about, you know, Mm -hmm. other things with people who are in there? So that's why I tell my students, like my dad, when he first went in, he went in for drug possession and he came out knowing how to hotwire cars and started stealing cars. Mm -hmm. So it's like when you put all of them together and don't give them something pro-social to do, they're just going to sit around and talk about glory days and all the crimes they've committed and learn how to potentially commit war crimes. Yeah. Like this is coming from my dad. Like he's telling me this is this is how it works. Mm-hmm. Like if you don't give us something to do, that's what we're <laughs> going to talk about. Yeah. So that's why I just don't get it. If we're putting all this money into corrections anyway, it just seems like we should be working smarter mm-hmm. rather than tough. Yeah, and I wish that more people um, understood that mm-hmm. <laughs> and appreciated I, that. Yeah, I think like how I get students too is they 
they don't understand like how much it costs until they take the class. And that's something I've pound into them. Like how much it costs to put someone in prison, which is on average $33,000 per year versus community supervision, which is about 2,500. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a massive difference. And so I pound that into them from the start. We have 2.2 million people incarcerated. This is how much it costs. This is how much it's costing who? And I always do this. Who is it costing? <laughs> Pointing to us. Yeah. And they say us, taxpayers. I'm like, yeah. So where do you want your taxpayers go- taxpayer money going? <laughs> so I think that helps you. The cost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Um, so how... How did your students react when they hear about your background, when they hear about your dad? So um, I've played around with different ways of telling them. Like the very first time I taught, I didn't tell them anything. And I felt very disconnected to them, to be honest. Like I just didn't feel like a closeness. And then as I taught further along, I got more comfortable with me sharing my own story. Like that even took forever for me to get to this point where I could talk about it. Mm -hmm. Because it is something that... You know, it's embarrassing, like it's potentially embarrassing and shameful. Like it makes you feel like you're not normal, especially Mm -hmm. as a kid. I would have people like ask me like, well, where are your parents? Why don't you have parents? And then like, oh, like every time I have to explain this, like it makes me feel like I'm not normal. Yeah. And so it even took me a long time even to be able to talk about this, like with you or with anybody. Mm -hmm. It took me a long time to get here. And so I found like, after a while, like, especially reading about what works in teaching, like Ken, Ken Bain's book about, like, what do the best college professors do? Mm-hmm. And, like, other books where it's, like, really about having an emotional impact. I'm, like, I mean, like, telling stories and that sort of thing, that's what I also remember from teaching. And so it just made me feel more comfortable sharing my own story. And eventually I did. So, like, this last semester, it came out the first day. Like, I usually don't, like, lead with that at all, Uh but I set it up so, like, we were talking about class norms and what they want to get out of the class and what worked best and what didn't, and a lot of them talked about how, like, they want their professor to be a person, not just, like, this us versus them mentality. Like, it should be we. Like, it should be this collaborative experience, and that's, like, very much how I feel. Like, I'm here to facilitate their learning, and Mm -hmm. we're in this together, And so, like, the first day, like I said, you can ask me anything you want, anything, just ask me. And one of them asked, well, why why are you into corrections? And then, like, I start laughing. I'm like, I can't, like, make something up. Like, I'm a terrible liar. Like, I (laughs) suck at poker. I cannot, like, I just can't lie. So when she asked, like, I was going to say something else, I'm like, I can't. Like, I just can't lie. So I'm like, well, both my parents were incarcerated, and it led me to want to try and see how we can do things differently in the system. And that's, they knew from day one this semester. Uh And because of that, I felt more connected with this group from the start than ever before. Mm -hmm. And so, like, let's see, it was right before COVID-19 happened. It was the class right before all this went down. Um, my, My dad zoomed into class with his friend who was sentenced to life without parole and he got pardoned Mm -hmm. and then his other friend who was a correctional officer for over 10 years they came to my class and zoomed in but my class didn't know it was my dad like i just told them this is scott 
this is him. He was in for uh, most of his life. He His last sentence was 10 years he served. He was actually sentenced to 9 to 29 years, mm-hmm. um, but he served 10. And so I'm just like, oh, this is him. Da, da, da. And then like halfway through, I'm like, so Scott, you have a daughter, right? He's like, yeah, she's pretty awesome. I'm like, oh, I think I have a picture. Because he's like this tough, like typical prison dude, by the way. Like yeah. he looks like badass. Like like people like boyfriends I've brought are like terrified. They're like, that's your dad. Oh shit. Like <laughs> I was gonna ask, like, is there a family resemblance <laughs> at all? Do I don't know if I look like my dad. Do I look badass like a prison person? I don't know. <laughs> so I got um <laughs> <laughs> I, do have, I do have tattoos. I mean, I guess there's that. There's that. So, yeah. So, I don't know. Um, let's see. So, I tell them, like, halfway through, I'm like, so, uh, you have daughter, right? And I show them a picture, and it's a picture of, like, me and him when we were really little. And then I push this tab on PowerPoint, and it says, that's Dr. B. Mm-hmm. And they're like, their faces are, like, priceless. They're yeah. like, what like they're so surprised even though they know they know that my dad's in prison or was in prison they don't put two and two together until like i tell them and then after he's off the zoom call i'm like so what'd you think and they're like one of them was like dr b you pumped us i'm like well yeah like this is my chance and so they i don't know like in their reflection papers they're always like really happy to get to talk to someone who's been in the system because a lot of them tell me that they've never talked to anyone who was system involved before. They've never interacted with a human being like that. Mm-hmm. And so I do have a recent paper out in the journal of criminal justice education about experiential learning and using guest speakers, tours and documentaries to help boost student learning. And some of the things like in that article and just in, you know, their reflection paper since are like, the interaction and being able to have the Q&A, like asking questions, like I'm like, you can ask anything you want. You can ask about people getting shanked. You can ask about all those questions that you mm-hmm. see on TV. You can ask them mm-hmm. and they'll tell you, they'll tell you the honest truth of their experiences. And so this last time it was a lot of questions about like tattooing in prison. They're like fascinated with that. Um, which Nelson, his friend, was a tattoo artist mm-hmm. in prison and is released now and has his tattoo shop. So he, mm-hmm. like, had a lot of cool things to say about that. Um, so, yeah, I think, like, just having that ability to talk to someone who's been in the inside is really good. Because you mentioned the myths part. Yeah. Like, a lot of them have told me when they came to this class, they thought everybody who was in prison was a murderer. Like, they didn't know <laughs> a large proportion of them are for nonviolent offenses. I've never heard that before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think because we live in Kansas too. So Wichita, um, we have a famous serial killer who is here. So a lot of them who are from here just like kind of think that that's who's in prison what is a... what I'm finding. I don't know. That's so sad. <laughs> I know it is. So it's my job to show them. No, there's other people there too. <laughs> So thank you for sharing that story. Um, I have had similar experiences, just like on the affirming side. Um, I had a friend who um, who died from like a prolonged Vicodin 
uh, career, we call it. <laughs> um, and so I, I tell him about that on the anniversary of when he was hospitalized and the anniversary of when he died. And it conveniently for me, it, like one's in October and one is in March. And so I get to spread that out across the year. And, um, I tell them that because, uh, well, for like a lot of different reasons. Um, but I've had like similar reactions from students who have lost people to drugs before and yeah. have never heard a professor talk about that part. Right. Because, yeah. because so many of us put on this image of like, everything's always been easy and we floated through life on a cloud of A's. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And just being able to say to them, like, no, here's something you want to hear some shit. Like, let's talk yeah. about, let's talk about my, my idiot friend who died <laughs> and like, let me process this still. So yeah. thank you for, for doing that. I'm sure your students really appreciate that. I think especially the ones who've been through it themselves, it makes them know that they're not alone. So that's why I do it, because, like, I felt very alone my whole life through this process, Mm -hmm. because, like, we didn't have support groups for families or anything like that. And, like, even research or anything hasn't really looked at families until just recently. Yeah. Um, So, like, for me, it was just being very alone, and I don't want other people to feel that way. So Mm -hmm. if there's any way I can do to make them feel, like... You're not, you know, you're not alone. This is not an abnormal experience. That's my goal. Yeah. Yeah. This makes me feel like I'm doing something right. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> good. That, that you and are I doing do, this like, I do feel more connected with students because of it. I think, like, my openness also makes them very open. And I'll mm-hmm. even do things like I play Spotify every day before class starts. Like, I get there early and I'll put on my music at first, but then like I'll shift it. I'll ask them, well, what do you want to listen to today? Mm-hmm. Just like stuff like that to connect, mm-hmm. I think is really important because it's all about the human experience. And it's not like being a professor, just being up there lecturing, it's just not going to make an impact. Like the, the personal connections, it's just so different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've heard like thinking about this now with everybody having to transition to online is like just from what I've heard from my students about ways that some of my colleagues I think are being a little too intense with things um, is really upsetting. Like you're supposed to be teaching them. So I I had to write something about this a couple of weeks ago for a thing at, at work, but like, I think you teach them better by modeling behavior Mm-hmm. And less about lecturing, right? So yeah. if, if I'm trying to teach them to be kind and have empathy, mm-hmm. then shouldn't I have, like, empathy for them when they're now, like, they've got family members who are sick or they've been they've been designated as essential employees and are working, right. like, constantly? Like, what? Right. why does it matter if I have, like, all these hours and hours and hours of lectures available? they can't see me potentially and just didn't have that connection. Like, I don't know. It just, I feel like not that people are missing an opportunity because that's gross, but I think like, Mm -hmm. I think faculty are missing an opportunity to grow as teachers during this. Instead, a lot of people are being intransigent and just doubling down on already bad practices. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I know it's crazy. So someone on Twitter, I think it was Erin O'Neill. She, she mentioned that she reached out to each of our students individually and sent Mm -hmm. an email. And I did the same thing because of that. And I'm so glad I did because Mm -hmm. all of them reached back out, reached out to me and was like, telling me some of their stories, like what they're going through right now. And if I hadn't have done that, I would have no idea like what they're going through. Like one of them might be homeless. Mm -hmm. Like, 
some of them don't have internet access. Yep. Like, so how can I expect them to do like Zoom lectures with me at the same time like it's just not realistic so for those reasons like i offer things to try to still make it as normal as possible like yesterday we had a zoom class where if they could make it like come here we'll talk about um last class it was talking about children and families um who've been impacted by incarceration and i just kind of did like a q a where they could ask me questions if they wanted to um but i think that helped like make them feel like a less scary transition. They're like, oh, okay, we can still have contact with you. We can still have that human aspect, but I'm not yeah. going to require students who literally can't get internet access to do that. Like mm-hmm. that's just stupid. Yeah. So yeah. once we made the move to go online for the rest of the semester, I recorded a voice message for them and mm-hmm. I emailed all of the students in the major just to say like, you know, this is scary, but we're all very proud of you. Oh, and that's nice. you made it off campus safely, which is a huge deal, you know, and you're going to get back safely whenever that day comes. Um, mm-hmm. But just to know that I'm very proud of all of you. And I got like all kinds of responses back about even just the ones that were like, Dr. Will, you made me cry. <laughs> Thanks oh, for that. <laughs> that's so sweet. I mean, that's what we are here for. Like yeah. those, like my husband's like, you never like talk about like, research or stuff like you do your students he's like you light up when you get like a nice email or like one of them stays after class he's like you light up like Mm -hmm. the way you react is so different to anything else so that's why we're here i think yeah for sure and i think that's a good spot to to stop this um so thank you so much for coming out today just about yeah (laughs) just about just Um, flying by Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So I hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. So if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenure Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.